Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Dairy Sports Podcast. I'm Sam Daring. Christian John is back with us. And again, this week, we have another special guest, writer for Brew Crew Ball, Brad Ford. Brad, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great. It's been a pretty relaxing week over here. So, you know, I'm still riding that high from the draft. So I'm doing very well. How about yourself? Doing very well. It's good to hear. As long as like we're all keeping our sanity through this all, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. So basically, we want to go through... Kind of your thoughts on the round, the five round draft. Kind of what went well, what kind of did not go well. A pick by pick analysis, and then actually end on a high note, because looking like today we're most likely very well could have a baseball season. So what I want to start today is with the five round draft, and we saw the NFL draft go virtual. I mean, I honestly loved it, and now you got the MLB kind of doing alternative plans and kind of shortening the draft into a five round. What did you think of that? Uh, you know, it is, it was fairly disappointing, especially when you're looking at a draft that is well over a thousand players now being reduced to about 160 players and limited opportunities. I think in the grand scheme of things, I'm, I'm very disappointed that the March agreement actually took away players' rights when it came to this. You know, the MLBPA uh, does a lot of good, but it also tends to throw around the rights of the players that they don't represent, and that's the amateurs who are going into pro baseball and the minor leaguers. So this was an example of that. They come up with the March agreement, which has been highly contentious in all the baseball talks, and part of it is, okay, five to 10 rounds. Uh, baseball comes back later in negotiations, says, okay, we'll do up to 10 rounds if six through 10 are capped off at this number. And that's the time when the Players Association says, absolutely no, we're not like ever allowing a cap in. That is the draw, that is the line in the sand for us. We won't allow it to happen. So then a apparently a few owners who want to save a few extra bucks said, screw it. We're going to pressure Manfred into doing a five round draft. And it was apparently very unpopular around the front offices of baseball, around a fraction of owners, and definitely the players. And after effects are something I think we're going to see for a while now, in that now we're going to have this pushdown in terms and override in, in terms of lower level baseball and junior college and collegiate baseball, where players who maybe weren't ready to be drafted in their coming out of high school, but eventually after consistent play and time to develop, become pro-worthy players, are getting pushed out of time by these super talents that are coming out of high school who would be players picked in the first 10 rounds. I think we saw a lot of high schoolers stop going after round her in the middle round three to after round three. So we really only had two and a half rounds of baseball draft where high schoolers were really going. So now you have that influx of talent that's causing difficulties for a lot of people. And it also sets up a precedent that a lower draft round cap is fine. So next year, part of the agreement, I believe, is 20 rounds instead of the normal 40. And by all indications, MLB's goal is to have 20 going forward. So I'm, it's disappointing because you would like to see these opportunities. There's nothing better than a the story of a late round draft pick thriving and becoming a pro player 
Like Mike Fires. Mike Fires was very late, and that's a recent brewer for us. Scooter Jeanette was very late, and they all came out and thrived. I mean, teams find it's hard, but you find good talents in round six, seven, eight, nine, and 10, especially. Uh, of course, if you watched the draft, you saw them kind of going through that all day. I think ESPN did a little bit better of a job. But I, in terms of how it was handled, the production was good. It was kind of nice to see everything all to come together over two days, and you're not sitting there Friday afternoon if you've ever watched rounds 11 through 40 of the draft. It's Callis and Mayo sitting at a desk while a person comes over the phone and says, player three, two, four, nine, Adrian Smith drafted out of Utah. And then they have to like figure out who this random player is and put something together on him. So it, it was nicer production value in terms of that regard. Watching it was easier, but I think when we look at the grand repercussions of what it is, more detrimental than anything. Yeah, I definitely agree. It's like you said, the the biggest thing is it's just disappointing because so many guys, as you referred to, just won't be getting shots or won't be getting the shots they would have gotten if it was more of a regular year or just more rounds in the drafts. And it's tough with even slot values and stuff like that. There's guys who probably everybody gets signed from this draft, or at least most guys will get signed. And at the top of the draft, it was weird to see the slot value manipulation just because guys like Asalasi go number, what I think it was for the Royals. Right. And you just, I didn't think it would really affect it that much at the top of the draft, but it really seemed like it did to me. And the point of now people who take longer to develop won't get as much of a shot. I mean, again, as you referred to, so many brewers were such late round picks. I mean, Brent Suter is my favorite player and he was a 31st round pick. Right. And, you know, based on his profile, not a guy who on paper should have success in baseball, but given a random amount of attributes, he's the type of guy who can find success when given a chance. And I think the other really disappointing thing is the free agents being capped to 20,000. You're looking at a group that normally the top bonus in the later rounds, the back 30, is 125,000. And now you've capped that to 20,000. And players, for a plethora of good reasons, are still signing at 20000 And it, the only people it's benefiting are the people who directly benefit from their team cost saving. And that's generally speaking the owners. Yeah, I mean, I was a little bit confused why they decided to, you know, condense the draft. And I think you both bring up great points. If I'm a player, like, I mean, you all mentioned multiple Brewers, even Brent Suter, Mike Fires, like those guys were drafted late. Now, like if, if I'm a guy that's going to get drafted like later, I don't have that chance. I'm automatically on the free agent list going undrafted. And I mean, like, look at the NFL. I, I, I really think their virtual draft went a lot better than even a lot of people and like a lot of teams expected it to be. So, I mean, it kind of confused me why they didn't strongly consider that route versus condensing the draft. And, you know, now you kind of have all these players going into later rounds automatically, assuming they're going to go undrafted. Yeah. And then being limited in their earnings, which right. I get 100,000 sounds like a lot to us, but with the lower amount that they get paid in the minors, that is something the players use to subsidize their income, and it's something that helps keep them alive. I've seen pictures of MLB players, even players who've had good bonuses, their house, like their homes during the season, and it's like lawn chairs because they know they need to save that money because they're only making, 
you know, anywhere from eight to 12 grand a year. And then they go and they play in the instructional leagues. They come to spring training, which takes away from their ability to go get a job in the winter, which a lot of them do. But then they're playing those generally for free. Yeah. And again, I think it brings the sad realization that there's definitely just going to be this huge cut down of minor league baseball. And we're probably just going to see less and less people playing baseball and less and less baseball. And it's very disappointing that with the way it's going and with the viewership that this is the way they're deciding to go. This is how they think they're going to get younger people into baseball is taking away cheaper options for people to go watch baseball and consume the sport. Right. And now they're turning, potentially turning the 42 or so teams that are cutting into quote unquote, the dream league, which will just be a free developmental subsidy for baseball to run and hopefully turn players who didn't get drafted to become pros in the way they want into usable prospects. And, you know, that's a lower quality of baseball than they were otherwise getting. Also, it's funny to see the quote-unquote need for contraction when you have teams like the Brewers who have two Arizona leagues and a team and a half in the Dominican League. Like, why do they need less roster space? Right. I, it's, this, it's just tough to even talk about, to be honest, just because it's so disappointing. Yeah, it certainly is frustrating, and it is all based in greed. And when I think they did the cost savings, and it's like, just over a million per club that was saved by not going to even 10 rounds. So it's a bummer, but now it's it's in the past and hopefully we get our 20 rounds next year. I think this is good for other forms of baseball, like the independent leagues. And, you know, if you're in Milwaukee, now we have the Milkmen and other opportunities to watch baseball. There's a great Northwest League, Northwoods League, <laughs> uh, that you can go watch. Uh, I have the Kingfish down by me, so I always check them out. And uh, other good ways to absorb baseball and support, like, the lower tier, but it, it's still not the same. Yeah, we'll be getting the Chinooks by us very soon. We're very, very close, but still, like, it's, it's not the same. And actually, that brings us to our next point is kind of go through our pick-by-pick -pick analysis. And the Brewers, they've kind of been all over the place when it comes to early draft picks the past few years. I know Micah Bello comes to mind, and he's kind of worked his way up to making a name for himself in the Brewers' farm system. And now you bring in a guy who played, spent three years at UCLA. Um, his latest season, he averaged 355, and he was ranked the number six prospect in Garrett Mitchell. And he did drop... I, believe a big factor was it because he had type 1 diabetes. To me, I, I consider this a steal. We picked him at, what, 20? And he was the sixth overall prospect in the draft? Yeah, I mean, I think the lowest I saw him ranked was 14. So even to get a person valued six slots ahead of you is still significant. It really does feel like a huge get for Milwaukee. I mean, you're looking at a guy who, by talent purposes, might be the most talented player out there. And because of where he's talented, also has a very high floor. Guys who, with his type of speed who are good center fielders can just play baseball and their bat doesn't really need to carry them. They can still provide value to their team in some way. But then you add in that he is, in the over the last two seasons, been one of the most destructive players offensively. The big worry for him, aside from the type 1 diabetes, is looking at his bat. There's a lot of raw power in there, and by raw power, it's kind of the strength you show in other ways with your bat, generally judged by batting practice. Scouts have given him as high as 70 raw power, which means this guy could hit some massive home runs. But in his time in college, he really just hit like low line drives that, and he was that top of the order, get on base type of guy. Now, based on everything post 
draft, he's really clarified that that was more of a team mentality. And the great thing about that is he was coached out of a swing that was questionable coming out of high school. And he was coached to use it exactly how his team went. Which when you see coachable tendencies like that and success with them, that always gives you positive outlook for how he can be coached in the future, especially for an organization that hasn't necessarily had the best success in the David Stearns era of developing bats. I mean, Keston Hira is the only one I can really think of that has developed under Stearns and Gray Montgomery and Todd Johnson or Tom Flanagan, and he didn't need help. He was already a hitting god. They needed to help him get more comfortable at second base and make sure he was healthy more than anything else. So when you look at guys where they adjust their swing, you're looking at like a Corey Ray where they tried to get more power out of his swing and now turned him into a 220 hitter who strikes out 160 times a year. So that's kind of the worry with Mitchell. I wouldn't say they're direct comparisons because I think Mitchell's speed and defense alone are enough to play. But it's one of those things where can you get that power? And then, of course, there's the type 1 diabetes concern. Type 1 diabetes is has gotten a lot of tools to make it substantially more manageable in the last decade. I have some friends with type 1 diabetes, and you know you don't even need to finger prick anymore. There's constant glucose monitors that will measure your blood sugar, and then an insulin pump that will constantly just react to that sensor and put the insulin in as kind of a mechanical pancreas, if you will. So that works out well, and he's talked about how he's lived with it for so long that he knows how to prepare and react to it, and I agree with that. This isn't like when you draft a player and all of a sudden he has type 1 diabetes and he's learned how he needs to react to that, then goes back to college. This is a guy who's lived his life with it, knows how to deal with it and cope with it. Um, I think the only substantial concern is there's been some proof that type 1 diabetes is an extra risk factor when it comes to dealing with COVID-19. And I think in that there is some additional worry where, well, if this guy were to get COVID, then you're dealing with potential lifelong illness factors. I think you just trust on him to do his due diligence, realizing that he has that risk factor and stay healthy. But uh, aside from those few concerns, I don't think you could ask for a guy with more talent in the draft. And I think he's universally going to be the number one prospect in the farm just because his ceiling is so high. Yeah, and that's what excited me the most about him was just that he was a guy who now you look at as he's the guy with the most star potential and potentially the really only star potential from any of our prospects that are currently in the system. But the type 1 diabetes thing for me, I thought it was really interesting when he talked about it and he said he thinks at this point it's almost an advantage just because he knows his body better than a lot of other players know their bodies that are just function normally because he's had this for so long that he just understands what's going on. And for the power aspect of it, I, I think it'll be interesting just because he'll get to play in Miller Park, so maybe that will be eventually something if he can really pull the ball as the lefty. But the defense and the speed were just too much to pass up, and obviously we'll get more into it, but that was a very clear target for the Brewers in this draft was getting quick guys up the middle who are good defensively. Yeah, and the Brewers have always been kind of known to basically stack their outfield. I mean, there's been years where they've been loaded with like four or five outfielders, six outfielders on their roster, and now they have 
They drafted two this year. They've got Corey Ray on their roster. They've got Micah Bello and Tristan Rutz down in the farm. Garrett Mitchell has all the tools to be a star. So I think in terms of planning ahead for the future of our outfield, I think it looks very bright, and I think we have a lot of talent up there. Yeah, absolutely. That's kind of a fail-safe. And also, it's just a nice commodity to have. They're very Because you're so stacked, they end up being a very expendable piece of your farm system. So when a Christian Yelich is out there and you have a Monte Harrison and a Lewis Brinson who can headline a trade and you get an MVP player, you'll have the capability to do that because you have that surplus. So surpluses are never a bad thing, and it's always nice to have, kind of let the cream battle against itself then rise to the top and see who really comes out on top. So the next one was kind of interesting to me is Freddie Zamora out of Miami, the second rounder. And we now have Furious. We have Orlando Arcia. I mean, the more infielder shortstop guys they've been drafting, does this kind of indicate to you that like, they're starting to a little bit, maybe lose a little bit of faith in Orlando Arcia. Like, do you think his time starting at shortstop for Milwaukee is as good as gone? I don't think that's necessarily it. Um, you know, I think there's still the chance for him to maintain and even perform well enough to get an extension. I think he just needs to perform. Uh, and I also don't think the Samora pick is reflective of their feelings on that. I think they see a player who, before an ACL injury, was potentially a high second to back of the first round pick, injures his ACL, and then falls down a lot of boards because of that. But you're not playing a season, so him still healing from an ACL injury doesn't really hurt you in the way it would if it were an opportunity for him to continue developing. So instead, you get this injured player who's gotten nicks for performance in or issues and character issues, but his character issue was getting suspended at school because he skipped a class. And find me a 20-year-old who hasn't skipped a college class that went to college. It's something that is very human. So it's not like, oh, he was drunk out all night and missed team curfew or something like that, which even then is very human for a collegiate player, but might be a little bit more of a red flag. He's known to take some plays off. But I think anytime you can get a solid defensive player at shortstop, no matter how stacked your farm system is with them, you go and you do it. Again, it's talking about commodity. Up the middle players, and Zamora, someone who could play second base that likely has the arm for third, maybe has more value at shortstop. But he's someone who can work as a good safety net if Terang develops by the time RC is out the door because, you know, his contract finishes up or Urias is out the door and Terang develops. Then you have Zamora as a trade asset. If Terang doesn't develop, then you have this cost-saving shortstop you can put in and instead of paying people like the Brewers don't like to do. You can then have that security that you're going to have a player who can slot right into where you need, have that need. And because he has that versatility, no matter where that need is, he can play well. Do you see Zamora staying at shortstop? I know you touched on it briefly, and obviously it's very early now into his pro career. It really hasn't, it actually hasn't started yet, but do you actually believe that Zamora could be a major league shortstop, or do you see him eventually going to second base? He definitely has the tools to be a major league shortstop. An above average one at that, he won't be a superb like gold glove defender, like the talent that's inside Arcia, but he is a strong enough defender where that isn't an issue. So the next one is Xavier Warren out of Central Michigan. Yeah, I mean, the catcher is actually surprisingly deep in the Brewers' farm. So towards the top, you have Mario Feliciano, who is a great hitter and shows that he can be serviceable enough catcher behind the plate. 
And then you have Peyton Henry, who is more ready with his defense, but working on some zone control and strikeout issues. Other than that, he has a pretty powerful bat. Then you have Thomas Dillard, who's kind of the wild card. And Thomas Dillard fits into the Warren bubble. Three times out of the last four years, they've drafted players who aren't necessarily catchers, but they draft as catchers. The first one was in 2017. You have KJ Harrison, who many view as a first baseman corner outfielder. He now was traded to the Nationals. But when he was drafted, the Brewers drafted him as a catcher. Played at high school, caught in bullpens for his team at Oregon. But, you know, had only played a couple games at catcher in an emergent kind of a like, well, we really need our guys to get a day off basis more so than, hey, he's a reliable catcher who can play first base DH than catcher. So then you have Thomas Dillard last year who gets drafted as catcher, again, seen heavily as a first baseman outfielder, really gets a few games at catcher last season. And then Xavier Warren, who played shortstop, played a little third base, but now they draft him as catcher. And the difference is, you know, there's a lot more positive outlook with Warren because he has more athleticism than Thomas Dillard, where Thomas Dillard is really a project where if you get him to work and you have a power first baseman's bat behind the dish and he can catch well enough, you're looking at a very positive production compared to what a lot of the league is working with for their catcher. All of a sudden you have the superb offensive weapon. Warren is more of your traditional high-value catcher. He walks well. He controls the zone well. At Central Michigan last year, he was the leader in his conference in collegiate war. You know, he's good from both sides of the plate as a switch hitter. Doesn't have a lot of power. Doesn't run super fast. But with his athleticism, can really make the quick movements that are needed behind catcher. Can pop up, make the throw to second. Can slide over, block the pitch in the dirt. And it'll probably take them three to four years to develop. With that in mind, in three to four years, it's very likely that we have a robotic zone in the major leagues. So zoning defense isn't going to matter nearly as much as it currently does. And that's what kind of makes them extra valuable in that if you can get that offense and you don't need to worry about really developing as strongly as the catchers have needed to be developed in the past, he becomes a superb asset. If that doesn't work, he can play second, he can play short, he can play third, and he just doesn't have the offensive profile to make that work, but he's probably a utility player and a fairly reliable utility player. I mean, a switch hitter off the bench is always a good thing to have, especially when they perform well on both sides of the plate, and having that versatility at defense is something the Brewers obviously love. So worst case scenario, he's a super utility guy, corner outfield is probably in there too, but... Best case scenario is he's a high average, high walk rate catcher who can uh, really set the table for more of the impact players. Yeah, I found it interesting that even Xavier Warren found it surprising that they announced him as a catcher. He basically said that he didn't expect that. He knew that they had some interest in him at catcher, but he didn't fully expect it to be announced as a catcher. But like you mentioned, it's always nice to have the versatility. Obviously, David Stearns is enamored with versatility. Pretty much anybody who gets brought in will be asked at one point or another to play a different position. And bringing in a guy who has the ability to play one of the tougher spots on the field. And you don't see a lot of guys get asked to go play catcher, but you'll see second baseman, like when Ricky Weeks was asked to go get an outfielder's glove and go in the outfield, it's a lot easier to do than asking him to put on catcher's gear and catch a couple of innings. So Yeah, absolutely. And with 
Warren, I mean, I know he played shortstop in college. And then when he went over to the Cape Cod, where he performed very well, uh, was playing third base. And you do that in the mindset of like, oh, I'll show them defensive versatility. But in terms of catcher, he played it in high school. And then he's caught a few innings at his time at Central Michigan. But yeah, it was never his defensive home in college. So now for a pro team to say the college team didn't believe you could do it, but we think you got it. Uh, I, that comes off as surprising uh, for any player coming into the pros. Yeah, versatility, it's always been a position that the Brewers have always kind of looked at throughout the past years, seeing as, I mean, look at Braun. I mean, you've got an aging Braun, but also he's also a guy that's capable of playing, I mean, not only all around the outfield, but he's played first base. He's played a limited games at third. When we had Grandall, he had experience at first base, and we now have Thomas Dillard, who's played multiple positions. Right, and it's trying to experiment with things that other teams aren't taking advantage of too, right? Like the Brewers want to be on the cutting edge, and it's something where they weren't necessarily the only team in the past two years using their bullpen the way they were, but they were one of the best at using their bullpen the way they were. And that was something where the numbers told them how to use their players in the correct way. And that's even why they found success in 2017. So they they're finding ways to get value out of players that are outcasts. I mean, 2017 was a group of waiver claims. Then you improve the waiver claims with a future MVP who's an all-star, and then an all-star who was an MVP candidate in Kane and Yelich. And it's like their emphasis on pitching. They don't care about pitching as much. We know that. We've seen that in free agency. We've seen that in just how they, they work their pitching. They want to be the team that values the players in the most beneficial way for the state of the game. And I think that's what we're looking at when we see them play with positions and defensive alignment in for their prospects in the minors. Yeah, and like you referred to earlier, you can definitely tell that in terms of the cutting edge, they're really all in on, they know the electronic strike zone's coming and they are absolutely just loading up on catchers who aren't the best pitch framers and also pitchers who aren't the best at painting the corners, but now with the margins being absolutely non-existent because you won't have Angel Hernandez in control anymore, it's much easier to get hitting value from a guy like Omar Narvaez, and the trade-off won't be as significant as it was. Yeah, but Hernandez will still find a way to argue or start a fight. <laughs> it's why he's there. So our next guy is, again, adding on to that outfield, building on depth, is Joey Weimer out of Cincinnati, another guy that spent a year in the Cape Cod, um, averaged just over 260 of his four-year playing career. And like you mentioned before, it's kind of developing guys like Lewis Brinson's a great example. Like him, I could kind of see being in that position, like potentially in a few years where you develop him into a tradable, valuable prospect and you trade him for another position of need. Yeah, and he also has potential superstar written all over him. He has some loud tools. They just have never happened in the game. I mean, that's why you look at a guy who gets a plus grade on his power hitting a, with a 408 slugging percentage in his collegiate career. A big part of that is his coaches obviously didn't do their due diligence in helping him control his bat better. You watch videos of him, and they went wild in on Twitter right after he was drafted, and he had the most insane leg kick you'll ever watch, where he closes the leg. In fact, I think in some of the videos, the left foot crosses over the right foot. Then he swings it to the front of the zone, which is just like a pitcher attacking the plate. 
type leg swing, which it takes control, it takes power away, and limits what you can do productively with your bat. He knows that that is an issue, and I've talked to him, he, he's cleaning it up. He, he knows that he needs to quiet his swing, he's going step by step. If you quiet that swing, he has plus speed, a great arm, and good defense. He doesn't have Garrett Mitchell 80 speed, but he has he's faster than most players. If you can get that swing to work, he could be a stud in the outfield. Really has a superstar nature, but the hard thing to do is, and the reason he's a fourth round pick, and kind of the biggest lottery pick that the Brewers have to offer is because he's never really shown it. He did have a okay appearance at the Cape Cod, maybe not as strong as the other players mentioned here, but definitely a lot better than what he's done collegiately. And I think there's a lot of hope in him. He also, uh, he had an 80-grade mullet, but now I, he told me that's gone. It's gone. He cut the mullet, so we can't enjoy his flow anymore. Well, maybe maybe not having the mullet will hopefully calm him down a little bit, calm down the swing. <laughs> yeah, take out some of that personality, limit the wild thing. Yeah, this like you mentioned, he's definitely just a lottery ticket he he has so much potential and he could be the guy in this class that we look back on and go wow it's unfortunate that other teams didn't jump on him a lot sooner just because it's in there but there's so much that needs to be done to unlock it that obviously teams were not willing to put in or at least didn't think they would be able to unlock what is inside of him yeah, and his game at the end of the day kind of reminds me of Brett Phillips. Uh, I think, like, the power-hitting Brett Phillips, not the one we drafted from the Astros, who initially was hitting high average and low power, but after he changed his swing with the Brewers and started hitting for more power, you know, a speedy outfielder who can has an 80-grade arm. Uh, he threw 98 miles per hour. His team tried him as a closer because he threw so hard, but he couldn't control it. I think if you refine it, you're looking at like the Brett Phillips type, and I almost never do comps, but I just that one just feels so right to me based on the strengths. Yeah, and even personality-wise, because Brett Phillips would definitely rock a mullet. <laughs> yeah, he needs to build up the charisma a little. I talked to him. He's a, he's a nice kid. Uh, he's super like ready to go and instructional, but he doesn't have the uh, the charisma exuding from him like Phillips does. Phillips was ready to be a TV star. Uh, and yeah, so I'm not sure. I should have tried to make him laugh to really see if the comp was there. If he <laughs> laughed like a pterodactyl eating a rabbit, then yeah. So our last guy is, again, we had Freddie Zamora early in the draft. We ended up Hayden Cantrell out of Lafayette, a guy who actually went back and forth from Lafayette to Cape Cod. He spent two years in the Cape Cod. And again, it's building on to our young depth of our infield. Yeah, I really like Cantrell. I think he's a fun pick. Uh, apparently, he expected to go in the second round, didn't ever get the bonus slot he wanted. Teams were calling him in the third and the fourth. And he's like, nope, I want my number. I am I am sticking to my guns. I know I'm worth this much. In the fifth, the Brewers call, offer him the right number, and now he's a Brewer. So nice aspect about how the draft works and letting you get late value. Kind of sucks to be him and just having like that anxiety for that five-hour stretch. But I'm happy he's a brewer. Um, spoke with him. Unlike Weimer, he exudes charisma. He has a YouTube channel, and the guy is just so personable, so friendly. Really intriguing personality and enjoyable and like all he talks about is he's like oh i just want to win i just like ever since i was seven i knew i was better than everybody i want to win i i am ready to just wherever i go dominate 
And you can see that in the history of his performance. This season, his draft stock dipped a little bit because he had some performance issues, I guess, in his short 2020. But in 2019, another leader in his division in collegiate war, another high performer in the Cape Cod. Definitely has the tools to stick as a shortstop, but if you want him to shine defensively, he's a second baseman. Can also handle third base, but probably best at second base. Brewers, historically, with guys have, like this, have let him them play a good amount of shortstop just because they'd like to have that option there. But this is a guy who's probably going to play second base and fill in on shortstop when the other guy has off, especially you're looking at a system that seems like it has a talented shortstop at every level. Again, he controls the zone very well. I think you can say that about almost every player that they drafted except for Weimer, and he makes very good contact. Not plus power in the bat, but he's a 10 to 15 home run guy and maybe a little bit more of that to come. He's just really fun and a really energetic player. He wants the, all his teammates and coaches say like he was a leader in the locker room. He was the guy who could always break the tension, make you feel good, and then go out there and have a good at bat. So personality, performance, tools, it's checks across the board for Cantrell. Yeah, you said it perfectly. Is He checked all of the Brewers' boxes with being he has a good track record, plays up the middle, he's got the tools that the Brewers obviously love, and there's the potential versatility of him being able to play shortstop, but being more of a second baseman. Right. And he's when I talked to him, he said, hey, I want to play shortstop. That's the position I like doing. I feel like I'm the infield leader, but at the end of the day, I want to do whatever my team needs most, and I know I can be one of the best defensive second basemen there are. So the last thing I want to discuss is actually, and on a high note, is we are looking very likely to having an MLB season. The 60-game offer to the players, and as of today, they're in the process of accepting that offer. This should have been done a lot sooner. So I think a lot of that, to me, is on Manfred. Well, yeah, Manfred and the owners agreed to the money in March. It was set. When they come back, it's pro-rated pay. And then every negotiation they made was negotiating money while the players like, no, we're just we're like we're negotiating safety. We're not negotiating money like we're not playing this game. And every offer they'd submit, they try to negotiate money again. So, you know, it worked out uh, where I think the players at the end ended up having too much leverage, especially if they were going to force a season. It would very much put the players in the position to sue over the owners not honoring the deal they had in March. So it's better for everyone, specific, it's better for the owners to get something in under wraps. Seems like the players are still negotiating their side. They're going to want a few more games because they're going to want to make sure that they get, uh, you know, as much compensation as they can get and they get compensation from playing games. Uh, It looks like there's an expanded playoff scenario in there. So you'll have 16 teams in the playoffs, which is over half the league. So the Brewers have a very good shot of getting in and, the most optimistic thing I've seen is by the weekend, we should know when baseball is coming back. Yeah, and what I'm most interested to see now is how much this affects next season and the season after that, just because I know that's been talked about during these negotiations as the expanded playoffs would stick around for at least next year as well, just to try and recoup some of the revenue that is going to be lost. Yeah, and I hate that so much. It's like (laughs) one of my least favorite things about the NBA is that everyone gets in. It's not fun to watch a round one 
trouncing of the one seed versus the eight seed. Baseball at least has more variance where better teams can lose to worse teams. It's possible. It happens regularly in the playoffs. So even when you're looking at a team that might have a 500 record, they could be, let's say, the Dodgers who are over 100 wins. Unlikely, but they could. And also, I'll be interested to see how this affects the schedule. If they really stretch it out into winter or maybe if they take the season a little bit shorter it'll be interesting to see the long-term impacts that this new deal ends up having because along with expanded playoffs we might have the universal dh might go on after the season it's almost a guarantee that it's going to happen this season so once it happens Manfred has been talking about it the last few seasons, very likely that it stays in the National League. What other repercussions is this agreement going to have on baseball going forward? And what repercussions are the tumultuous relationship that led to the point we're going to have on the negotiations for the new CBA? Yeah, and I guess that kind of brings me to my next question is like, do you see this deal being a somewhat of a turning point for Major League Baseball, whether they kind of move the season around or like with a start in the end time, expand the playoffs. Do you see this deal potentially being a little bit of a turning point for MLB? I think that MLB knows it doesn't have all the leverage and that Rob Manfred was the one who was like, okay, I'm going to fly out. I'm going to meet with the MLBPA face to face and we're going to talk this out. I think that moment was the first time where I was like, hey, there's hope there's hope that like we can negotiate to something that works out and something like changes that make everyone happy. So it's the most optimistic event about baseball in a while. I think it's the most optimistic we've all been about just because <laughs> it just kept like, it seemed get seemed to get worse and worse. And finally today finding out that Manfred and Clark, neither of them were trying to gain leverage by talking about how they were going to be meeting, but they actually just met and knew, nobody knew about it until today. Right. Which, I mean, honestly, all the negotiations should have been going on in the background the entire time, and then your fans wouldn't be as angry as they are. Yeah, I mean, with the span of, what, 48 hours, Manfred changes his mind from saying, it's not looking like there's going to be a season, and then two days later, he goes, oh, of course there's going to be a season. Yep. Yep, nothing like riding the roller coaster of Manfred's yeah. <laughs> public comments. <laughs> <laughs> So actually, that is all we have, Brad. Do you have anything you want to add? We really appreciate you taking the time out of your night. No, I really appreciate having me on. Uh, it was a great time. And feel free to reach out to me anyone time you need a guy to blather on about prospects because it's all I like to do. Absolutely. We appreciate your time. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Give us a follow on our social media, Dairy Sports. And thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Brad. And stay safe. We'll